Joe's Media Corner. This is our third episode. If you enjoyed the first two, if you haven't, check them out. But now we're going to turn to talk radio with Michael Harrison. He's one of the founders and creators and editors of Talkers Magazine and Talkers.com, really the Bible of the talk radio world. We talked about a lot of issues related to what's happening now on terrestrial radio, satellite, and of course podcasts and all the impacts it's having. So let's listen to that interview with Michael right now. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing really good. Thank you so much for that nice introduction. And good luck to you with your uh, new podcast. I think that's really exciting. Uh, you're a perfect guy to be doing the podcast, Joe. Well, I hope so. And I uh, tell people uh, that I've known you for many years. You've been a great source of knowledge and information and response. And, of course, the Talkers Conference every year. Um, is that the actual title? It's Talkers 2018, Talkers 2019. Yeah, it's gone through a couple of changes. Yeah. Um, when we started it back uh, in the late 90s, we called it the New Media Seminar. And uh, people said, why are you calling it the New Media Seminar? Isn't it a talk radio conference? And I said back then, this is before the 21st century even. You know, it's like, what, uh, 22 years ago when we first started this event. I said that the, the biggest challenge... The biggest uh, effort facing talk radio in the 21st century is going to be integrating its programming and its platform into the digital era. And uh, that's going to prove to be the biggest challenge it faces. So let's call this the new media seminar so that people in talk radio, which at that point was still very analog and very traditional, you know, transmitters and radio appliances and talk was predominantly AM. Um, uh, at that point, it was very exotic, new media, but it got people thinking in the right direction and we were among the first, maybe even in some cases the first, to introduce such concepts as podcasting, online broadcasting, um, the potential for um, satellite radio, uh, all kinds of alternative media that turned out to be um, very much a real thing. I mean, here we are now 18 years into the 21st century. So somewhere along the line, we changed the name of it from the New Media Seminar to the Talkers Conference or to the Talkers Convention. We, we just call it Talkers and then the year. Because I started to notice after a number of years, people were saying, hey, I'll see you at Talkers. Uh, people were referring to the convention as just Talkers. So it became Talkers 2018. And Next what year will be 2019. The, what year was the first one? I believe the first one was uh, 1997. So, and you started Talkers, the magazine and now website and... I started in 1990, yeah. We did five conventions with an organization called NARCH, the National Association of Radio Talk Show Hosts. We programmed it for them, presented it in conjunction with them. We were not NARCH. NARCH was not us. Uh, but it was, a, it was a group of people headed by uh, Jerry Williams out of Boston's uh, WRKO. And um, we helped them with their first five conventions and then uh, decided that I, I, I didn't want to be associated with another organization and putting on a convention. We had a uh, kind of a difference of uh, opinion of which way it should go. And, that, and that's when I launched the new media seminar. And I've been and, lucky uh, enough to go to at least five or six. And you always have the big names, Sean Hannity, Mike Francesa, the big uh, uh, radio companies and, and distributors, um, and it's really become a, a place with, with real industry issues, not just 
you know, talking uh, heads uh, trying to claim that they're the best, but really get into the nitty gritty of audience and finance and types of shows and it and and it is for the industry, not for the the fans. Well, we talkers talkers is a professional operation. Right. We are a trade magazine. Uh, talkers is not a fan magazine. Right. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I try not to. Um, promote it to fans of talk radio because that's a whole different take on on the reality of uh, the talk industry uh that's that's the show that's 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 the the public uh face i'm interested in the nuts and bolts of it as a business as an industry and that includes programming and includes its face but there's a lot more to it and um uh, at our convention we we're very very strict about who gets in it's it, you can't you know people say how could you be such a modern medium and not have online registration for your convention you can't get into this convention unless you call on the telephone and you pay with a credit card because we want to know who is um coming and if somebody is not in the media if they're not a professional broadcaster a journalist or in a uh, business that is associated with talk broadcasting uh, we 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 don't let them in. Don't even, we don't want them there. Get in and pay and sit in the audience. No, no, absolutely not. I, we we could have we could have five thousand people there if we wanted to, and turn it into a circus. But it wouldn't have the value to its participants, who are the cream of the crop in the industry. Um, and that doesn't mean only the big ones. We we love the up and comers. A uh, person could be a small time beginner in a in a tiny little station but that's a real professional so we're not snobs about how big you have to be but you got to be a legitimate player and and we get a marvelous cross-section of some of the best people we've had presidents of the united states speak at our conference when was that who was that uh, we had uh, george w bush there um we had um uh, a number of uh, of top uh, leaders uh, who've come and wanted to interact and talk uh, with the hosts. Um, we've had major, major broadcasting figures. Rush Limbaugh uh, has spoken. Glenn Beck has spoken uh, to the convention. Um, uh, the Dickies have been to it when they were running uh, Cumulus. Uh, uh, Jeff Smullyan, who runs Emmis, uh, Mary Berner uh, spoke there. You know, you mentioned Francesa and Sean because you come at it from a, um, a consumer-oriented media. Uh, you, you're a journalist who writes for consumers, so they're the ones that jump out to you. But we we have uh, had superstars from behind the scenes as well as major players. I mean, Al Franken, when he was in Air America, he spoke. As a matter of fact, I had the uh, wonderful opportunity to present him with the Freedom of Speech Award and then throw him off the stage during his speech. What happened there? Why was he thrown off? That was, that's a long story. Long story and I don't, was, I don't, but it was deserving, I'm sure. It was very deserving. But we're not partisan. But that's another conversation. <laughs> There's a lot of other conversations that branch yes. off of any discussion oh, yes. about talk radio, let me tell right, you. Al Franken. Um, but <laughs> yeah. the, um, let's talk about the state of talk radio then, is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on. Where, where are we in terms of uh, terrestrial radio versus online or mobile device versus satellite? Um, well, are things good, bad? Things are good and bad. Uh, there, there are good things to say and there are bad things to say. I would say overall it's good, but it isn't great. Um, 
what's good is that within the world of radio talk and I, and I mean all of the different permutations of talk, news talk, political talk, sports talk, um, pop culture talk, which used to be called shock jock talk, uh, talk on morning shows on FM music stations, uh, all news, uh, public radio talk. So the, the wide gamut of talk, I think, is um, the king of radio. I, I, I think music radio is definitely in, uh, in its, its waning years and uh, not doing very well. So relative to radio, talk, and for your interests as a journalist, news talk, political news talk radio, are the leaders. They have the most listeners. They have the most buzz. They have the most influence over politics, the most influence over society. They have uh, a, a very active listenership. They're foreground listening, so they're very good for advertisers. Uh, and some of the biggest household names in the media are radio talk show hosts. Absolutely. So, sure. so, t so talk is doing beautifully when relative uh, to radio. Radio, which talk is part of, it's not a separate industry, although Talkers Magazine acts like it is. You know, we, we, we actually called it the talk radio industry, like it was a separate industry, but it's not. It's really part of the radio industry. The radio industry uh, has been going through many, many challenges, and um, these are difficult times for radio, as, as these are difficult times, uh, Joe, for any media based in the 20th century roots. Newspapers are going through difficult times, magazines, uh, movie theaters, television stations, um, any records, music industry, any kind of uh, media that's, that has its roots in the 20th century is having its challenges evolving into, integrating into the digital era. And, and radio is one of them. So there's a lot of challenges facing radio, and talk is not immune to them. But talk has done the best job of integrating into the digital era and the best job of maintaining tremendous pertinence as an icon of media in this new, brave new world you know, that we live in. Now, when we talked earlier, you said that they was, there was a lot of debt and, and a lot of the radio giants are, are buying, uh, buying up the properties and expanding and, and leveraging, and that there's there's money issues among the top. Well, uh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what me. I'll tell you what the uh, the thing is. You, you, basically, what you're asking me, and um, uh, you know, full disclosure to the listeners that you and I have had a lot of chats about this before. Oh yes. So uh, so you're referring to other conversations that we've had. The things that are challenging radio, uh, what are they? Okay. The number one challenge to radio, uh, let's not say the number one, the number one that I'm going to tell you, because they, they're, they're all important. Uh, among the challenges facing radio right now uh, is um, exotic competition from the digital era. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that's obvious. There are all kinds of platforms, all kinds of unlicensed Internet uh, media that uh, challenge radio for its part of the media pie. That includes cable news talk television, uh, which really is an outgrowth of talk radio. Uh, shows on Fox News Channel, CNN, CNBC, MSNBC, um, even C-SPAN, 
basically were inspired by the 1990s approach of talk radio. And so it sort of spawned its own cousin and its own competitor. So there's competition, 21st century competition uh, is a problem. Uh, another problem is the uh, generational divide. Young people today did not grow up getting the lion's share of their connection to their popular culture via radio. Mm -hmm. They are using devices that are digital, smartphones, you know, tablets, computers. So uh, it's, it's, it's increasingly difficult to get young people to listen to radio. And uh, radio hasn't done that much to foster young listenership, even though it says it wants to get younger demos, younger demos, but it plays music and does talk basically for older people. So it's kind of a vicious cycle. So there's a generational divide. The other problem uh, facing uh, radio, and not just talk radio, but uh, radio in general, is that most radio stations in America have been absorbed by giant corporations uh, in the age of consolidation that uh, kicked off in the late 80s, went through the 90s into the 2000s, and finally reached a critical mass, and then uh, the you-know-what hit the fan. Most radio stations operate under smothering debt. They are absolutely struggling with uh, payments and uh, debt service that's far beyond what they're able to earn um, through the sale of advertising and, uh, and, and, and generating revenue. Is that radio so, stations or the companies that own them or the stations themselves? Well, what's the difference? Radio stations, radio stations and companies that own them are the yeah. same entity. Yeah. But they're, they're exactly the same entity. Uh, Clear Channel became iHeart. That's the largest of them all. iHeart is um, very, very, very dangerously close to and dancing with bankruptcy. Wow. Um, and uh, that means that every one of their stations uh, faces that situation. Uh, Cumulus is coming out of a bankruptcy and faces another bankruptcy if it doesn't uh, come up with the right set of circumstances to bring in fresh cash. Entercom, which was a smaller company but had been around a long time, recently absorbed CBS, and the word is that they're having their issues in dealing with um, the cutting of budgets in order to uh, meet uh, their obligations. Alpha Media, uh, which was start started uh, several years back by Larry Wilson, who made a fortune selling Citadel, um, he came back into the business, and he over-leveraged himself now, uh, and that company is having problems, and I can go on and on. Um, so most people that work at radio stations today or work in the radio business are operating with companies that are preoccupied with staying afloat, and they don't have big budgets to work uh, on the things that they need to keep the thing growing and competing against the other problems that radio faces. Uh, and, and that is money to put into programming and money to put into promotion. But how much of it is the, now we still have the big names, the Rush Limbaugh's, the Sean Hannity's, um, the others uh, that you've mentioned before. Uh, they don't have, when you have them on, I mean, th that's still drawing the audience, isn't it, or no? It draws, all the audiences are there. So what the, 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 the audience are there, but they, well, they, what happened was during the, um, after deregulation in the late 80s, and it, and, and it was much easier to buy 
a large number of radio stations as opposed to prior to that, you only had a limit of how many you could own right. per market and per chain. Uh, radio became the darling of the financial industry. The, the bankers in Wall Street loved radio. And anybody that uh, had half of a track record uh, and wanted to put together a chain and start absorbing stations, they were able to get easy loan money. And when money is easy to come by, what does it do? It drives the market up. It, it drives up the prices. Same thing in housing. When it's easy to get a mortgage, all of a sudden the price of houses goes up. Go up. When, uh, when it's the opposite, they come down. So the easy money that um, legitimate broadcasters and broadcast companies were able to get from, um, from the stock market and from bankers and from investment companies and um, investment capitalists uh, drove the prices up and they bought and they bought and they bought and there was a rush to be the biggest uh, chain. And as a result, uh, the prices went through the moon. And the prevailing wisdom was that radio was not just a business that's value is based upon its ability to generate revenue by earning it. You know, multiples, they call that a, a price of a, of a business would be based on X multiples of its cash flow. It, it, what it's able to make times, maybe four times, five times, whatever. The multiples went up into the, into the stratosphere. Um, way beyond what radio could earn selling advertising uh, because they figured the greater fool theory uh, is what it was called. Someone will come along and cash us out and make us a fortune. People were buying stations for a lot more than they were worth because they could get the money. And there was a tremendous amount of ego involved in it. And, and, and what happened was as the 2000s started to roll along, all of that competition from the digital age that I mentioned started to manifest itself. Uh, the economy started to go sour. Uh, it became obvious that uh, radio was not the future major medium that everybody hoped it would be, that there were other platforms as well. And the value of the stations started to stagnate and then started to turn down a little bit. And then you had the crash of 2008 and advertising began to be difficult to sell and digital platforms that radio was integrating into were not as lucrative in terms of, um, you know, uh, dollar value. The agencies started squeezing radio because they saw that radio had its back against the wall and they would start paying, you know, dimes on dollars for advertising and it suddenly became a very difficult business. And is it, <clears throat> and has it been affected by the same things as a lot of other media, where so much has gone to Google and Facebook in terms of advertising? Um, yes. Along the lines of print and television. And well, print media. is facing the print. Print yeah. and TV face the same problems. Yes. Yes. Because of that yeah. advertising we, difference. Yeah. But in in radio, yeah. so then where are we in terms of who's listening? the most is it is the online listener is it the mobile device is it the well that's a whole other thing that's 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 a matter of fact i'm glad you brought that up because i forgot to mention that among the among the problems facing radio and i don't want you to get the impression that i i, I don't believe in radio i do but i also believe in truth and and i'm giving you the full picture there's a lot on the upside as well um but uh, the other thing that's that's uh, uh, affecting radio uh in uh, in, in a very uh, negative way is um, 
is what you just brought up. The ratings have become murky. Uh, that uh, the it's apples and oranges to try to rate uh, online listening in the same metrics as on-air listening. And um, they don't get the same credit for online listening as they do for on-air listening. And that has been devastating out there in terms of dealing with agencies and in the marketplace. Now, why is that? And, why can't you... Why can't you why can't you estimate your your audience online and digital like you can? The complexity, the complexity of yeah. of the two systems. It's a, without without getting into you know a, a mathematics lecture. Um, there's a tremendous complexity involved in radio ratings. It's how long people listen. It's what kind of people listening. Uh, the the uh, time spent listening, day parts. Um, uh, the demographics of who's listening. It's not just how many people do you have listening. Um, and online is a, is kind of a different thing. Uh, on demand, uh, whether people are listening at different times, whether, uh, whether they're listening to the first five minutes of an on-demand podcast, say, or an hour of it. Uh, clicks have a whole different algorithm than tune-ins, and uh, it, it, it makes it very difficult to do it. Nielsen has had their issues doing it, and um, as a result, it's, it's led to a lot of confusion. Radio has been very instrumental in encouraging people to listen online, listen to our, you know, go to our website, right. listen to us streaming, listen to our podcasts, and as a result, um, it, it's been very difficult to sell. Uh, the ratings have been murky, is the word that I like to use. Now, in the old days, now, it, was the, it was Nielsen. Now, used to be they took Arbitron. Arbitron and Arbitron used to have the book. You'd fill out the, your, the, your, the, your diary, the Arbitron right? used the diary method. The diary method was that? recall. Uh, some markets still do recall in a diary, and the others use the PPM. Right. Now, the PPM, the Portable People Meter, is, in my opinion, a flawed system. Meters don't listen, people do, and the meters sometimes don't work properly. Yeah. <laughs> There's all kinds of issues with it, and they can't have a, a large enough audience sample to really be accurate. They're, they're est the word is estimates. They're estimates with a great degree of um, variation. So uh, let's just say the ratings are, are problematic. Now, my opinion this is just my opinion. This is this is not backed up by any one rating survey or or you know uh, company or or study. This is just my opinion, being in the trenches and being on the ground level and knowing this business as well as I do, is that at this point in time, more people are listening to talk radio. I don't know about music radio, but more people are listening to talk radio online. Than on air, that seems to and, make sense because there is. Now, are you including the mobile device as on? Yeah, yeah, of course. And that makes sense. Any anything anything yeah. that's not an AM or an FM radio picking it up yeah. over the airwaves. And you also include satellite in there because I'm a big satellite listener. As well. I, I I include satellite as yet another way that people okay. are listening to to terrestrially terrestrial radio um, emanated shows. Right, because a lot of them do come from other sources, including cable right. television. You can listen Correct. to MSNBC, CNN, Fox, 
all on satellite. Um, exactly. As well as certain stations. My daughter tunes in, I think it's KIIS in L.A. And I it's, on, in it's, on, it's on Sirius. It's on Sirius. She listens to that, even though it has va- commercials, because I guess she likes the music they play versus maybe a, an all-music station. But yeah, that would seem to make sense because there's so much more. And again, as you say, people are listening a lot less to music on radio because it's a digital personal device for music. So if you have that, I would think it's easier to go to your talk source on there as well rather than go to a whole different machine, the regular uh, terrestrial radio. Yeah, and, and, and the number of commercials make listening to music yes, on radio saying, difficult. Um, how much commercial time do we hear on the radio today versus, say, 20 years ago? I'd say that uh, I'd say that uh, there are twice to three times as many commercials why, on. Why is that, and how is that affecting? It must be driving people away, you know. Well, I think I think that you know the the, the basic argument is well, radio is free, so you got to pay the bills. But I don't think radio is free, even free radio, because I think that one of the things in the 21st century that is extremely valuable and rare is time. Yes. I think that I think the three things you know that that uh, that we're going to be losing in this 21st century of ours is uh, uh, clean water. Um, privacy and time. Those are the three things that are of increasing rarity. We all need time, we all need clean water, and we all need privacy, and we're losing it all. And um, it's been proven people will pay a lot of money to save time. Yes. And 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 uh, that's one of the reasons why uh, people pay to have uh, Sirius XM. Yeah, and I, and, I and, do it as and, well because you can mm-hmm. go on a music channel with no commercials. Although there's some commercials on things like Howard Stern but I will listen to Howard Stern on demand, and there's no commercials in the on-demand part. Well, you know, there's all kinds of talk now about Netflix adding some commercials, and and maybe uh, Sirius XM having more commercials, or you, you be know, careful. and you, and exactly, you got to be very careful. Let me ask you quickly uh, as well. And again, we're talking to Michael Harrison, the editor, publisher, creator of Talkers. Give us your quick background uh, that brought you to today. Uh, you started in the late '60s. No. Yeah, I wish I had a quick background. <laughs> I, I don't know how quick. I'll try to do it real quick. <laughs> I, I, I started as a broadcaster while I was in college in 1967. Uh, I got a uh, job at um, a radio station called WLIR on Long Island. Before it was a rock station, it was a beautiful music station. I used to play Montavani, Percy Faith, classical music, you know, kind of square stuff. And I got a job as a staff announcer there while I was in school. And uh, became very friendly with the owner and uh, worked there for two and a half years. And uh, the station was struggling. Nobody ever heard of it. It was it was located in the Garden City Hotel in Garden City, Long Island. Excellent. And even the people even the people in the hotel that worked at the hotel didn't know there was a radio station down in its basement. Well, it, that is it was true underground radio. <laughs> so uh, I. Um, I was, uh, you know, I was playing Montavani and Percy Faith, but I was a rocker, and uh, I, I convinced John Rieger, the owner, to uh, let me take over the radio station and, and revamp it, and uh, came up with um, WLIR's um, original underground rock format. And as many and, people in New York area know, that was a real independent, groundbreaking music station, and I remember listening in New Jersey, trying to get it, getting it... Uh, Getting it in, yeah. maybe not as well, but it was it was like nothing we never heard before. We were the first real uh, suburban 
progressive rock station. Yes. We were, were highly inspired by WNEW FM and WPLJ in New York, which were in their early, early stages. Sure, the they old had been PLJ. on the, Now it's yeah, yeah, the old, the old new PLJ. music like everybody else. And um, my um, my best friend was a, another staff announcer. I was at Hofstra. He was at Adelphi. Uh, Richard Neer. Sure. And 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 basically, uh, he and I put this thing together, and uh, it became it was it, it was a success beyond our wildest imagination. Not only did it become the best known radio station on Long Island, it became nationally famous in months, in weeks. Boom! It exploded. And it caught the attention of Metro Media, and Metro Media hired me and Richard to go to WNEW-FM. When Roscoe left, uh, it opened up uh, a rare shift, and they moved things around. They um, they moved Pete Fornatel from the mornings oh, to mid-mornings. You know, all these NEW people that I grew up with. It's great. Yeah, uh, they, they, they opened up the morning. The morning was considered to be the least important uh, time, believe it or not, on progressive days, FM right? radio. Well, because uh, the kids were listening to them in the college dorms at night. So um, they had um, Roscoe was on six to ten at night. It was Fornatel was six to ten in the morning. Jonathan Schwartz was ten to two midday. Two to six was the legendary Scott Muni. Six to ten at night was Roscoe. Ten to two late night was John Zacherly, and overnight was the Nightbird, Allison Steele. Sure. So when Roscoe left, they moved Fornatel to 10 to 2 middays. Scott stayed 2 to 6. And Schwartz moved up from middays to that prime night spot. And then there was Zachary, and then there was Allison, and I took over the morning. And Richard Neer came in as music director, which basically uh, in those days was like the librarian. And he had a weekend show. And then Zachary left. And when Zachary left, they moved Allison to the 10 to 2 at night, and Richard did the overnight from 2 to 6, and I came on at 6 in the morning. I did that for um, almost two years, uh, back in the real golden days. And then, uh, for various and sundry reasons, I left, and Dave Herman came in and stayed there for many, many, many years. And I went on. Uh, I was teaching at NYU. I was like 20 three years old, teaching uh, music class at NYU. And I, I did some work at WCBS-FM, WPIX. PIX was top 40, CBS-FM was oldies. And I continued to do some fill-in at WNEW for a year and really started to learn about a lot of formats. I was on all three stations at the same time oh for God. a year. And then I had an opportunity. I came up with this idea of being less progressive for its own sake, less obscure, try to program for ratings and, and help um, progressive radio be more attractive to agencies and uh, more mainstream because it started to really become uh, unpopular with the agencies. They, they, they thought it was hippie radio, acid rock, drug radio. It, it, it's, it, was, it, it didn't have a good image. So we cleaned it up a little bit, started to do some research, played the best of the best, and uh, I came up with the term AOR, album-oriented rock. And I went out to uh, KPRI in San Diego and um, had the opportunity to compete against a very big station uh, that was getting tremendous attention in Billboard magazine, um, a program by a legendary programmer, Ron Jacobs, sure. KGB, KGB AM and FM. And lo and behold, my little AOR KPRI at 106.5 actually 
beat them in the ratings, not by a lot, by I think the first one was one-tenth of a point. But just the fact that we did that got, got me national attention as a programmer and AOR. At the same time... And what year was that, do you think? 1973 okay. to 1975. And how would you describe album-oriented rock? It basically was progressive. It was progressive rock radio, only with a little bit more research and formulaic. It was. It, it wasn't as freeform, subject to the DJ and his or her whims. It because the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth generation of DJs didn't have the same savvy in programming that the original generations of progressive rock DJs had. They, they, they didn't know the music as well, or they had their own taste that wasn't necessarily in sync with public tastes, and they started playing to each other. So it was basically very similar. It, it, it was similar, but it was programmed to win in the ratings as opposed to impress your friends that you knew more about music than they did. So what kind of music in the 70s would you play that's AOR versus rock and roll top 40 at the time well we were playing we, we it, were well like classic rock well classic we rock today it, classic rock classic rock is is what has been derived from aor yeah it was, a, but AOR was more the music of the time i would imagine well it was years ago we yeah. didn't have as much of a library right you know in 1970 71 we lost janice joplin Jimi hendrix and uh jim morrison <laughs> right, right the there you know, and, and the Beatles broke up, uh, you know, come 1969, 1970. That was the end of that. I mean, it, it, it didn't have uh, a lot of those people. Mm. But um, basically everything that you hear on classic rock today, which was a, a format designed by Fred Jacobs, mm. um, was music that we played right. on AOR. We also played things on AOR back in those days, and even progressive rock, that by today's standards would be considered middle-of-the-road, mainstream, pop, and unhip. We played them when they were very hip. On the great WNAW-FM and the great WLIR-FM in their most underground days, back uh, 69, 70, 71, 72, we played James Taylor, Carol King, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Simon and Garfunkel, uh, John Denver. These people were considered extremely hip. So one of the things that I've learned is that nothing is inherently hip. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the circumstances of the time, and there's sort of like a wheel. Things start out in the underground. Then they rise to the mainstream, and then they become passe. This, nothing changes in the music. It's just the perception of the public. And then sometimes retro becomes hip again and everything old is new again. This was a major revelation for me when I was growing up in, as a man in my 20s into my 30s. Because when I first started, I thought that these things were intrinsically hip, that some things were unhip. Frank Sinatra, unhip. Bing Crosby, unhip. Patti Page, unhip. Elvis Presley, hip, and then uh, not that hip. Hmm. The Beatles, totally times, hip. Isn't it? Changing yeah. times, but the music doesn't change. Right. It's just that, that the mood of the public changes. So how did you get from, uh, from San Diego to Talkers? You see, I told you it wasn't a short story, okay. but, it's, but, it, but it's an interesting story. 
uh, I um, became involved in the creation of Radio and Records with Bob right, Wilson. The, the famous uh, magazine that was in yeah, the yeah. uh, Bible of itself. And I was involved in designing it with him, and uh, I, I uh, proselytized uh, AOR it became, uh, in, in the pages of that from my, um, my work at uh, KPRI. And upon coming into Los Angeles, I became involved um, as an advisor uh, to the programmers uh, at KMET, the Metro Media sister of uh, WNEW-FM in, uh, in L.A., and became um, uh, a DJ there part-time, uh, behind-the-scenes uh, consultant, and on the air on the weekends with a talk show that was similar to what Alex Bennett used to do at WMCA on the weekend. He did a talk show and he was a DJ. Uh, I did a, an issues-oriented talk show between 1975 and 1986 on KMET, a rock station in L.A., and loved talk radio. And um, So you moved into uh, talk radio at a music early, station? Early, at a music wow. station. Very early. Uh, I was one of the first uh, talkers on FM. I mean, talk radio really came out of its own in the 80s, correct? As the music uh, yeah, more yeah. There had always been talk radio, yeah. but it was always just, it was like a sideshow. You know, it was it, it wasn't a it wasn't a major genre. DJs ruled the roost, and you know, stations would have like a guy like Barry Farber on at night, or uh, Barry Gray. And, you know, there there were talk shows around, but they it wasn't maybe a handful, maybe twenty five talk show hosts in the whole country, and that was and that was it. Um, I left R&R in 78, started my own production company, was very, very involved in syndication, was syndicated by most of the networks on rock shows with various and sundry forms of Mike Harrison. I was Mike Harrison in those days before I became a little more sophisticated and was Michael Harrison. Uh, I had shows with Westwood One and, and CBS and RKO and, and MJI and did a lot of that. And... Uh, I sold my uh, my publication uh, that I started in 78, 1980 to Billboard and wound up, uh, while still working at KMET and doing all those shows, uh, I wound up being a, um, a radio editorial columnist for Billboard magazine and redesigned their rock charts. And uh, from there, I uh, decided I wanted to go into ownership of radio because I believed that um, – the talk revolution was coming in the 90s, and we were getting into the mid-80s. So I bought a station in Springfield, Massachusetts, an AM station, WSPR, and uh, with my partner Al Herskovitz, uh, put a format into it called Super Talk. And uh, we did a lot of the things there between 1986 and 1988 that were um, emulated later by um, commercial stations around the country that uh, were part of the talk explosion. We sold the station in 88. I went back to my rock roots, produced a show for Mel Karmazin, and, and uh, he sold it to the ABC network called The Official History of Rock and Roll, which was a 50-hour special. And then I went and helped um, Dan Mason revamp WZLX in Boston, a classic rock station, updated it. In 1990, I started Talkers. The rest is thought it, I, I thought at that point that that was a, the, the tail end of my career. I had no idea. You, you that it was here in the exploding uh, current time of talk. And who? So who? What is the? Is it still conservative leading uh, medium? Well, I think that I think I, I, I think that I think that news talk radio, political talk radio, definitely leans conservative, and preaches to the choir. Why is that? I, why, why is liberal radio not really ever? 
Well, let me let me let me first say that 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 there's still there are liberals on talk radio. Right. They're just yeah. on public radio. They're on they're on culture talk radio on music stations. We, we used to call them shock jocks. They lean liberal. There's black urban radio that is very very much supportive of the Democrats and liberals. Right. And 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 the whole liberal conservative thing to me, those are just directions. I, I I don't like to get too caught up in those categories. And you know me, I am not a liberal nor am I no, a conservative. You're, you're, that's another thing about talkers and your approach. I think has been very balanced and business focused mm -hmm. and looking at the industry as a whole, which again is a, I think a rarity. Well, it's it's the way I see nowadays. it's the way I see the world. That's, that's the way, the way I, you have to you know, as you've said, well, to me, you have to be honest and 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 tell like it is, and that's yeah, that's all you can yeah. ever ask. I don't. I don't root for my team. I don't root for victory over truth. I, I root for truth over victory. And sometimes that means you have to go against the grain of uh, uh, of uh, your friends and uh, your party. But um, so so that being said, conservative um, does very well on news talk radio, and liberal has not. And the reason for that, in my opinion, is that conservatives are an easier target from a broadcasting standpoint to um, to reach. It's a more targetable segment of the population than that segment of the population that might be prone to vote Democratic Party or uh, that would be liberal. It's, it's purely a broadcasting thing. And why is um, that? Well, the conservatives are uh, more homogenized in terms of um, their uh, points of view, uh, their demographics, uh, their psychographics, and they're galvanized – by the fact that uh, for many, 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 many years, conservatives feel that the pop culture in America, Hollywood, newspapers, mainstream television, et cetera, et cetera, has leaned liberal and has basically marginalized them. So they feel now, oh, my, this Rush Limbaugh, these guys on talk radio, they're talking to us. We're going to support them. That's the main reason. Another reason is liberals tend to listen to conservatives more readily than conservatives tend to listen to liberals. So they've enjoyed not only the listenership of people that agree with them, but they've also enjoyed the listenership of people that hate them. And why is that? Why Don't know. I've never – I've been trying to figure that one out for a long time. Yeah, because uh, we did uh, have Air America Radio, which – Came and went and came and went and never really caught. Oh, uh, one of the problems. One of the problems with Air America Radio was it just wasn't all that good. Yeah, the quality wasn't really well done. No, it, because it was more. You see, here's the thing: a lot of people who view the world through a political lens and not through the lens of broadcasting media or show business actually think that radio is a political cause. They think it's a political party, and it's not. Politics is an element of the package, but it's entertainment. It has to be fascinating, it has to be entertaining, it has to have charisma, it has to keep you company. It has to have a lot of factors other than just a political agenda. And Al Franken and uh, Janine Garoppolo and, 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 and the people that were running uh, Air America didn't fully understand that. And can there be and, a difference in the conservative voice seems to be sort of uh, angry sometimes and, and drawing the crowd and riving people up, whereas some of the liberal voices, and I know you mentioned Frank. And I, I don't see it that way. They are a little more uh, whiny and complaint, sort of like, woe is us. I, 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 I no, no. I, 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 some people say that. It seems to come off that way to me. I got to tell you, my view is, is that both sides are angry. 
Yeah, they, and 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 seems to do it seems to use that medium better. I don't know why, but well, uh, the, 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 this, this is you know we can talk for for years about that. But yeah. I just find both sides strident. I find both sides angry, and sometimes, frankly, I get a little bit annoyed with the liberals because they're supposed to be more open-minded. <laughs> They're liberal, <laughs> and yet the liberals are intolerant of, of anything that isn't liberal. Right. And what so, you say makes sense that the conservative doesn't listen to the liberal radio as much as vice versa, and that yeah. I'm sure plays into a lot of it. So as we uh, near the end here, again, we're talking to Michael Harrison, the leader, uh, creator, editor of Talkers. Where does where does the future look like for talk? Well, radio? I think the future is bright. I think the future is bright and because I think it? talk. Well, well, let me tell you. I, I mean, I think it's bright, but I think it's going to go through a period of, of pain. I think that eventually the media is going to figure out how to create a business paradigm, a standardized business paradigm in which advertising, subscriptions, and um, uh, relationships with agencies and with listeners and viewers and subscribers is going to finally settle down. And we, we will figure out how to make a buck at it because the interest is there. The audience is there. The tendency to speak and to listen to speakers, storytelling, sharing information, uh, persuasion, uh, reporting, journalism, all of the many, many components of spoken word audio media uh, are timeless. Music comes and goes, and other forms of entertainment come and go, but the spoken word is one of the major things that defines our species. We just have to figure out now how to get the the medium and the message in sync within a commercial um, revenue-generating process and make a buck at it, which will happen, and then it'll carry on. And it won't be on an AM or an FM appliance. It'll be on whatever devices are in vogue. And I think 10 years from now, 15 years from now, all of this great stuff that we have, smartphones and iPads and you know all this stuff, it, it'll be clunky old stuff too. It's going to become seamless. We're all going to become totally integrated with our media. What will the new I, I device be, I'm afraid to ask? And How do we hit chip in your head? Yeah, I think we're headed towards that in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Kind of, we already have the chips in your yeah. dog and cat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we're going to become. Uh, we're going to. People will be scared yeah, we're gonna, into putting yeah, a chip in yeah. their child. So yeah. Your child will never get abducted. Here's the chip, and then it'll lead to something else. Uh, it sounds futuristic, but maybe not. I mean, well, it's coming and it's here in many ways. I'll tell you, Joe. Technology is for good and for bad. Yes, like a lot of things. It's, Exactly. Well, I thank so. you, sir. As always, we can go on and on, and we'll talk to you again. I'm sure, again, we've been talking to Michael Harrison at Talkers.com, Talkers Magazine. Of course, you also have your podcast, the Michael Harrison Interview. Uh, people can find that on the Talkers website or elsewhere. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it, we, we do that uh, with Podcast One. And uh, if anybody wants to hear my conversation, similar to what you're doing uh, with people in the media and, 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 and all that, uh, it's mhinterview.com. Thank you, as always, sir, and we will talk to you soon. Thanks, Joe. And that's it for this episode of Joe's Media Corner. Make sure to tune in again next time when we talk media issues, how they affect you, and how they affect the news. Thanks for listening. Down on the corner.